Last week we arrived in Daniel chapter 2 and dealt with the first half of that chapter. Uh, not just because it's a long chapter, uh, that wasn't the reason we did it this way, it was actually more because I wanted to make sure we, we saw some things before we jumped into some other things. Um, because at the end of chapter 2 comes really our first dream and interpretation and our thoughts can very quickly go to oh what's to come and how do these details work themselves out but I think primarily what chapter two would want to show us is a God who is good who's in control who has a plan for human history a God who is the the source of wisdom because he embodies wisdom himself and so all these things I think can sometimes get lost if we just jump right into the last half of the book but we are going to go there this morning Um, and so our plan is to get from verse 24 Uh, we're not going to make it to the end of the chapter we're going to get to about verse 45 and then you're going to get a three-week break from Daniel which for some of you is great news others um you're probably going to go, oh, we're going to forget. Um, so Linda and I and Pastor Dave and Ruth and my parents are heading off on a cruise on Friday. And we're going to be gone for just over two weeks. So that means you get to hear Pastor Andrew and Pastor Tyler. And then Steve Jantz, who's up at Miller, is going to come down and speak that last week. Um, if you think to pray for us, it's kind of one of those, th- you know, one of those funny sort of things. It's like, pray for us as we are on a cruise in the Caribbean. It's like, you know, buddy, you don't need any prayer. Um, <laughs> But perhaps like me, you have watched the news recently, (laughs) and not all these cruises are ending up that great. Um, In fact, there's like bonus cruises happening around the globe right now, where it's like, hey, you get your regular cruise, and then this additional 14-day cruise tacked on to the end. Um, But in all seriousness, we would appreciate your prayers, and the prayers for those who are here uh, continuing to, to lead and to serve you. So just so you're aware of what's going on. But this morning, that's kind of our plan to work through uh, the second part of Daniel chapter 2. And before we jump into the text, I just want to go back and make sure we keep in our minds the structure of the book of Daniel. Because if we keep the structure in mind, then we kind of understand what the different pieces of the book are doing. And this is, this is very important. So um, you can find this essential, the, the information I give you, In a number of places, this is not innovative, this is not mine. In fact, if you want to go and see a really good version of this, you can see the Bible Project uh, on YouTube. They do a great job of this. But it's not even original with them. It's been written about and kind of articulated in lots of ways. But it's just a way of kind of understanding the book of Daniel. So I'll just kind of move this over here for a second so that you can maybe half see what I'm about to draw. I'm going to draw boxes, and each box represents a chapter, okay? So we've already dealt with chapter 1, that was our first couple weeks together, which is a story that, interestingly enough, introduces Daniel and introduces all the characters, but by the end of verse 21, you realize it's almost like chapter 1 covers the whole timeline of Daniel's life. It gets like from the beginning point of him going into exile right to the end and talks about sort of the 70-year span of his life. And so it kind of acts almost like a, a summary of the entire book, and the picture it paints in chapter 1 is a story of not just one man, but a group of people who are being faithful to the Lord, who come up against a kingdom that is opposed to God. And so we see this collision between Daniel and his friends and the kingdom of Babylon, typically represented with with the king of Babylon, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And it leads us to wonder what will happen to the faithful people of God when they encounter kings and kingdoms who are opposed to God. 
And we see that take place in, in chapter 1. And we see a group of people who are faithful to God, who trust in Him. And we see God pour out His grace upon them. And we see this incredible way that God works to protect and preserve His people. Now, if you know the book of Daniel, or, or some of it, probably you're probably really familiar with the stories of chapter 3 and chapter 6. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel in chapter 1, who are eventually promoted into positions of authority. But in chapter 3, the quick version of where we're going to get to is they are required to bow down to a statue that Nebuchadnezzar makes that they are unable to bow down to if they are going to remain faithful to the Lord. And they end up in this very difficult place, and as a result, they are thrown into a fiery furnace. And again, God preserves them. And there's lots more to the story that we'll see when we get there. But again, what we've got is a story of some faithful people of God coming up against a king or a kingdom that is opposed to the people of God. And we get to watch how obedience and faithfulness and God's grace works itself out that God would protect his people. Then chapter 6 is the story of Daniel and the lion's den, the classic story that probably most people know something of the story, even if you know nothing else about the book. But again, interesting enough, you get a very similar story of a faithful man of God in this case who goes up against a king and a kingdom that is against and opposed to God. And we watch how obedience and faithfulness is going to interact in, in an empire that is radically opposed to God. And again, God comes through for his people. So the three big anchor stories are essentially, in essence, the same story. What would it look like for someone who's going to remain faithful to God to come up against a system of this world, a king or a kingdom who is opposed to God? And we see these three stories. Now, chapters 4 and 5 are the stories of two kings, two Babylonian kings. The first, Nebuchadnezzar himself, and then the second, his son, Belshazzar, not to be confused with the name that's given to Daniel, Belshazzar. So these two stories that come here in chapter 4 and 5 are the story of God bringing a message of, of warning and judgment to the two kings who oversee a kingdom that is opposed to God. And God essentially says, because of your pride and your rebellion and your arrogance, uh, all against me, there's going to be judgment. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, if, if you know this sort of quirky little story, he ends up for a few years becoming like a beast of the fields until he finally repents and recognizes God. In the case of his son, this is the story of the writing on the wall. And we have all these even modern expressions that come out of this story, who is warned in a similar sort of fashion, but he does not heed the warning. And that very night, he dies and is replaced by uh, Darius, the, uh, the king of the Medo-Persian Medo Empire. So we get these two very similar stories. And I think the point is to sort of see them in their similarities Two kings, two warnings, two very similar issues. One king listens, one king doesn't. Up here, we have... Oh, my pen's running out of ink. We have chapter 2. I will grant you, this is where the PowerPoint rarely runs out of ink. The bulb has died, so uh, it's not entirely foolproof. In chapter 2 and chapter 7, we have two two visions or dreams that are very, very similar. In fact, if you read chapter 2 and chapter 7, you can see how they kind of overlap, and they're speaking of very, very similar things. Chapter 7 in more detail than chapter 2, granted, but they have a very similar message to them, which is all the kingdoms of this world will fail, and we will be left with a victorious kingdom of God. So if you, if you kind of picture the pieces, you've got a story, and it flows this way. Um, and by the way, 
What's really interesting is you can tell the book's designed like this because it's, this isn't chronological. Uh, this vision here actually takes place in the first year of this now dead king. So if you read through it, you realize, okay, as the book is being written, as we're being taught this message, it's being put together in a certain way that we would see and understand these big ideas being conveyed to us. So a story of faithfulness against the kingdom, then an encouragement to remain faithful, that, that you can have courage and comfort because God is ultimately going to vindicate his people. And then another story of faithfulness against the world kingdom. And then these stories of these kings who are opposed to God and how they respond. And another story. And then this next encouragement, again, of comfort and an encouragement and an instruction to have courage because God is going to vindicate his people. Then what takes place of this backside, chapters sort of 8 and 9, are another vision of Daniel and a prayer of Daniel, and then 10 through 11 is the final vision, really answer the question or, or wrestle with the question, when? If God is going to vindicate his people, if his kingdom is going to come, if these, if these wicked earthly kingdoms that are opposed to God, these ones down here represented by these stories, are one day going to end, the answer or the question coming out of chapter 7 is, Lord, when? And chapters 8 through 12 are going to wrestle a little bit with that. So with all that in mind, you can see how important it is to kind of understand how the book's being written because we're in chapter 2 and the moral of the story of chapter 2 is however we read it, whatever we're going to come out the other end with, we know we've read it right if we come out the other end with encouragement, comfort, and, and the conviction to continue to have courage because God's going to vindicate his people. Okay? If we misread it and come away with something other than that, we've, we've kind of misread the chapter. So... Just thought I would kind of remind you, big picture, of what's going on, and now we'll get to work in chapter 2. So, uh, for those who weren't here last week, the first half of chapter 2 is a, is a situation that develops something along these lines. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The dream troubles him greatly. It's a reoccurring dream, the way the story is written. And he wants to know what it means. And so he gathers all of his, his advisors and the wise men and the diviners that he has in his kingdom... And he tells them that it is their job to not only interpret the dream, which would have been probably more common, but to also tell him the dream, which would be impossible, which is exactly what they describe in verse 11. No human can do this. This would be something that only the gods would be able to do, and the gods don't dwell with us. So they have a problem, and the problem is because Nebuchadnezzar has announced if they can't do it, he's going to kill them all. Now that's kind of the opening sort of part of the story. So we jump into the part of Daniel. When the knock comes on Daniel's door, it's the executioner, a man by the name of Arioch, who shows up at Daniel's door and essentially is announcing to Daniel, Daniel, you need to come with me because I have to kill you. Of course, we don't know all what takes place in the conversation, but the long and the short of it is, Daniel says... Let me pray, and my three friends pray. And as a result of the prayer, and we see it even recorded a little bit through the middle part of this chapter, as Daniel prays, and the Lord answers, and Daniel praises God, there from verse 20 to verse 23, that God is miraculously intervening. And he is going to provide Daniel not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. The very thing that Nebuchadnezzar's wise men has already, have already said can't be done humanly, right? It's our indication that God is at work, all right? And so we're picking up the story in verse 24, 
and we're going to work through now what the dream is and what it meant. Therefore, verse 24, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Kind of interesting, just a little side note. Uh, Arioch did nothing of the sort. You realize that, right? He did not find a man who could do this. He was out to kill this man. Daniel was the one who said, God can do this. And it's just sort of along the way, it's interesting, isn't it? How, how probing of, of human nature, of which we, we are a part of that, how probing the story becomes when we see ourselves in it. I see myself. I won't point the finger at you. So often as someone who loves to, to pass the blame and take credit. I think it's just part of human nature. Ariok's there. He sees a moment where he can self-promote. I have found a man. It's like, Ariok, you didn't. And I think it's interesting how the story is told. Because if you watch how he speaks as opposed to how Daniel is about to speak. You see a radically different character emerge. Here's how Daniel speaks. Uh, pick up verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, yes, I am your man. I can tell you both your dream and your interpretation. And as a result, I would like, remember that reward you promised at the start of chapter 2, I would like, no, look at, look at how he responds. Daniel answered, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mystery has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Isn't that interesting? Here's this self-promotion presented on this silver platter. And what does Daniel say? It's like, no, no one can do that. And I shouldn't get any credit for this. It's not me. It's not that I have wisdom any more than anyone. This is God. I think it's just that good reminder for each one of us that there will come moments in life that afford incredible opportunity for self-promotion where you can put yourself out there and it's like, I should get the credit. This is me, mine, I. And probably each need to take a lesson from Daniel on how he approaches this and point to God. Now, the other thing before we move on from that little conversation is what I love in verse 30. It's just pointed out almost as though it, almost as a, like an insignificant detail. And sometimes in scripture that happens, some of the like, most greatest treasures are just so like casually stated. And, and yet they're amazing. Just look at that last statement of verse 30. That he may, um, sorry, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So in other words, Nebuchadnezzar. You don't even know the thoughts of your mind, but God does. It's actually very similar to a verse in John chapter 2 about Jesus. 
where we're told that Jesus knows what is in the heart of every man, every man and woman, which I find interesting because there's days, there's times where I've really not even known my own thoughts. Have you ever had one of those moments? It's like, I don't even know what I think on this. I don't even know what my heart, like it's all mixed up and the motivations and it's kind of messy and you're left kind of going, I don't even know me. And then we find out that God knows, he knows my thoughts better than I know my thoughts. Jesus knows my heart better than I know my heart. And it's then a curious thing, again, pointing the finger at myself, that I would struggle to trust him, even though he knows my heart and my thoughts better than I do. I think if God knows that much, we ought to be able to throw our trust on him. Verse 31. All right, let's get to the dream itself. Here we go. You saw, O king. So this, is, this was the first problem, right? Because the king said, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You have to tell me the dream and its meaning. What's going to be interesting from verse 31 on is Daniel will tell him the dream. And then verse 36, you can see that he transitions to the interpretation. And I'll just throw this out there just because it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure I totally understand what it means. But there is more detail in the interpretation than there is in the dream. In other words, Daniel is going to interpret features of the dream that he does not actually tell us in the dream. For example, in verse 40, he will talk about what it means that this iron kingdom, this, this kingdom that's going to come, will crush the others. But he doesn't tell us that detail in the dream. Or in verse 41, he points out the, the fact that there's feet and toes involved in this, but he doesn't tell us that in the dream. Or in verse 45, he talks about the stone. And we'll get there. This is confusing. We're going to get there in just a sec. The stone that's cut out from a mountain... And what that means, but he doesn't actually tell us that fact back in the dream. And all I can think is that God wanted to make sure that there were some crystal clear things communicated. And so God makes sure that the details that Nebuchadnezzar and I think Daniel needed to know, and I think we need to know, are preserved in this dream. So, you saw, O king, verse 31, behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And it's not just the last word of verse 31 that should leave us with this sense of, of fear. Every, every word used in verse 31, the, the brightness and the, the might and all these things, they're all words intended to evoke the, the, the fierceness, the, the fact that this dream left Nebuchadnezzar not just troubled but terrified. All right, so he has this terrifying vision Verse 32 begins to describe the vision. And I'll just quickly, just so we know what we're about to read. He's going to describe a statue made of a number of different precious metals. So here it is. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of iron and partly clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. They became like the chaff of summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there's the, there's the image. There, there's the dream. A statue. Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming at night. He sees a statue made of various materials. And then, out of nowhere... A rock comes, striking the statue on the feet. It disintegrates and blows away. 
And this stone that starts off so small and insignificant grows and grows and grows and fills the earth. Now, what does that mean? You can understand why Nebuchadnezzar, we talked about this I think last week just a bit, was pretty troubled at this. I mean, in the next chapter, he's actually going to build a statue to represent himself. So he's obviously got that thought in mind that, that it feels to him like this could be him. And the, the fear of this whole, like, everything could disintegrate. It could be blown away. It could be gone. I'm sure is partly what troubles him. But Daniel comes down verse 36 and explains actually what the dream means. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king... The king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given whatever they, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, are the head of gold. That's you, Nebuchadnezzar. Do you hear in there, and I think I'll, I won't spend as much time on this because I got a little bit off track in the early service, the language of creation. Remember Adam and Eve in the, create, in the garden, given dominion over all the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. It's the same language. I think there's just this underlying, I'll, I'll say this much, there is an underlying way of speaking through Scripture that when we rebel against God, when we forget who He is, when we choose our own path, the judgment that comes is much like the judgment that came across Adam and Eve. So God puts these kings in their place. That's what he's been told. God gave you glory and dominion over these things. But Nebuchadnezzar, if you, if you don't heed God, the judgment to come on you will be similar as the judgment that came on Adam and Eve. Actually, it's interesting. If you go read Ezekiel 28, this is bonus territory. You can do this this week. I won't read it. Second service. Um, the judgment against the king of Tyre is, is delivered in the identical language. Starting off, speaking of sort of like the creation sort of picture and, and applying that to the king of Tyre, but then speaking as, as though he actually, it actually will say in there that you'll, you'll be banished from this garden. It's the language of judgment, and that's what's going on here. And so Nebuchadnezzar is being warned in essence. All right, you're the king of, you're the head of gold. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will become a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Okay, so now he has this picture of the rest of the body. So all these materials, it seems like what Daniel is saying is that each piece represents a kingdom that's to come. And what's interesting is that in chapter 2, um, there is no indication of who or what these are. Now, I have an opinion. Some of you who have studied this book probably have an opinion. Um, much of our views of what these things are actually come out of verse, or sorry, chapter 7 and 8. In other words, when God brings this next vision to Daniel, dream to Daniel, and then this vision here in chapter 8, are where the pieces start to fit together. So we will come to that. But what's interesting is that God doesn't instantly go there. Remember what's God trying to do? He's trying to encourage 
Daniel. He's trying to give him comfort because he knows he's a, a faithful follower of God living in a hostile world. He's trying to give comfort and encouragement and encourage Daniel to continue to have courage because one day, one day, God's kingdom will be vindicated. But for now, Daniel doesn't need to know that. In fact, chapter 7 and 8 aren't going to come in Daniel's lifetime for 40 more years. In other words, what Daniel will know is simply this, that Nebuchadnezzar is the head, some other kingdoms will come, they will pass away, and then he knows this last part. And the last part begins there in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke the pieces, uh, broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. That message is intended to give hope, comfort, and courage to someone who's living in a world that is not their world. Someone whose citizenship is in a different kingdom and yet somehow they are living in a hostile place. What is it about that that accomplishes that? I want to suggest two things. Number one is this. We learn that God sets in place every king. He raises them. He removes them. It actually was back there in Daniel's prayer in chapter 2, verse 21. You see, when he praises God, here's what he says. He changes the time and season. This is God. He removes kings and sets up kings. And this vision, it, it just continues that thought for Daniel. Look at verse 37 again. You, O king, the king of kings. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king on the planet. But it's the God of heaven who's given him the kingdom, power, and might. Nebuchadnezzar, you might be great, but it's not your doing. God put you there. And Daniel lives his whole life in Babylon, in a hostile world, with a kingdom against him, with the knowledge that God remains sovereign. You may not understand all the pieces and how this works and why God, because God doesn't reveal all those things, but what God does reveal is that he puts the kings in place and he removes them, and there's not a kingdom that's outside of his control. I think that ought to encourage us. I'm not sure it always does. But when you flip on the news, when you hear what's going on in the world, and sometimes it seems like it's chaotic and out of control, we need to remember that God is still in control. It's much like last week. It's going to leave us with lots of questions of like, well, then why God and how God and when God? But the fact that God is in control is absolutely clear. These this story is banking on it. Uh, the other part of it that's interesting and sort of a little aside is, is something that you see in the vision because we often assume that, that the world progresses, right? It gets better and better. We get smarter and smarter and we get more and more advanced. But in the whole vision, the whole vision is actually the opposite of that. You see it? It goes from this fine sort of fine metal. Sorry, this is the backup microphone. It's got a few quirks. Um, to a lesser metal, to a lesser metal, to, to by the end, very common materials that can't hold together. And the picture is not the world getting better and better and more and more enlightened and more and more advanced. It's actually the opposite of this world becoming weaker and weaker and more and more frail. 
probably a good reminder to us not to bank too much on the world around us. Not to disengage. Daniel doesn't do that. You see that at the end of the story. But, but as one author put, and I love the way he put it, he said something like this. Don't spend your whole life polishing the statue and failing to look for the rock. We could do that, right? We can get so caught up with this world that's shiny and neat and there's so much that's good and attractive. We could get so focused on that that we forget to look for what God's doing. That's the first thing I think we need to see. The second thing we need to keep our eyes on and focused on is this kingdom that God is establishing. You see it there in verse 44. And there's a number of descriptions through the, whole, um, through the whole chapter, even all the way back into 34, 35. At least these five. Can I point out five things that God communicates about this kingdom that he's going to put in place? Number one, well, first, maybe the most obvious, God's going to do it. This is not a human kingdom. This is not some great, wise, strong human leader is going to throw off these other kings. No, this is God doing it, setting it up. And, and the vision there is all this rock that's not fashioned by human hands. In other words, this is a God thing. Second thing that we find out is that it will never be destroyed. It is permanent. Third thing we find out is that it actually will consume all these kingdoms. And here's where it gets... Here's where the vision, the, the dream, sometimes when we, when we think we know what we want it to say, in other words, we get to the end of the book of Daniel, we start putting the pieces in place, and then we can read back into the early chapters how we want the pieces to all fit. We end up missing some of the most remarkable things that are actually being said. So just read slowly with me verse 44 one more time. And in the days of those kings, which kings? Well... Nebuchadnezzar, whoever's the king of this silver kingdom and the bronze kingdom in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. In other words, what God is doing, he is even doing in the day of Daniel. It might not have shown up much. There might not have been much to look at where you would look and Daniel could have said, oh, yeah, I see this kingdom that you're establishing. But God said, I was doing it right from the start. In fact, by the time you get to the end of verse 45, you'll see that, that God actually says that, that it's his kingdom that breaks into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, when your kingdom one day fails, it will not be the Medo-Persians who can lay claim. Well, from a human perspective, that's what happened. And when the Medo-Persian Empire fails, it's not like we can say, look, Greece did that. And when Greece fails, it's not like we look and say, oh, Rome did that. And when Rome fails, it's not like we should really listen to the historians who have wrote countless books. They're out there of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. It's like, what caused it? Was it economics? Was it slavery? Was it the, you know, Goths and Visigoths? What, like a human migration. What happened to Rome? And Daniel's answer is, God he set it up. He tore it down. He's been doing it all along. And Daniel gets to see that, that it's God's kingdom that will consume all these. The fourth thing we find out is that it's universal. It will fill the whole world. There'll be not a corner, not, a, not an area, not a trace of this world that does not encounter the kingdom of God. And finally, verse 34, and I think maybe in some ways the most important, at least for me, is that it all comes from a obscurity and apparent weakness. 
That when God's kingdom comes, it's not like it's instantly impressive. Not in this vision. It comes as this, this little rock that then grows. And, and even the language to describe this, it's sort of language of surprise that, that it keeps growing and growing and growing and fills the whole earth. And it's almost this sense of surprise that this is happening because we didn't anticipate that something would grow out of something so insignificant. And Daniel, these are the things that ought to encourage you and give you hope and courage when you face a kingdom that seems so opposed to God and so powerful. This reminder that God is going to build and is building his kingdom. I think there's, a, there's probably not a time where we don't need to remember these things. But there's two particular times I think we need to remember them. One is when life is going really badly. And it's just hard. And there's parts of, parts of life going hard that are, that are temporary. Um, it's not that they're insignificant and any easier, but they're, they're temporary. You go through a time of difficulty and it ends. But then there's other parts of life that aren't. We don't like to talk about them. They're just way too painful. They're the decisions we made from which there is no complete fix. They're the illnesses that, that we don't often pray for because they don't often get asked for prayer for because... They're just here. And you have it now, and you will probably have it the day Jesus calls you home. That kind of hard stuff, the relationships and the trauma that we go through years before, and it just doesn't get undone. And so you just go through life with that the whole way. When things are like that, you need to hear that God's kingdom will prevail. You need to know that. Otherwise, you're going to lose heart. It's just too hard. But God informs Daniel. And what's interesting about Daniel's story is Daniel's living it. Daniel never goes home. It's not like this neat story where at the end, it's like, oh, and then Daniel goes back to Jerusalem, and he reunited with his family. It's like a Hallmark movie where everything comes back together. It's like, no, no. He stays in Babylon. He dies in Babylon. But he has this vision of God's kingdom. And he knows he will prevail. And he may not live to see it, but it will come to pass. The other time we need to know this is when things are going good. <laughs> kind of ironic. Because when things are going good, it's easy to take our eyes off of that. It's easy to stop valuing that because we don't feel the need for that as much. It's very easy to get caught up with the kingdoms of this world. And it's not, it's not all bad to be involved. In fact, you're going to see in whatever, three or four weeks' time when we get into the end of chapter 2, Daniel is highly engaged. In fact, he, he follows the Jeremiah's instruction. Right When you're taken into exile, seek the peace of that country because then they will prosper and you will prosper. That's Daniel's instruction. It's his marching orders. So the message isn't disengaged from the world and don't care about it. The message is don't fall in love with it. And when it goes well for you, don't take your eyes off the kingdom of God that's to come. Because we can get really absorbed in those things. I can get really absorbed in those things. And maybe you're a little bit like me. Or you can just start to take your eyes off of the hope we have. Because life's going well. 
If you're in that spot this morning, just can I urge you to nudge your vision, your eyes back to the rock, this kingdom that's to come. Now, as we bring this thing in for landing, there's one last thing I want to do, and that is to take you from Daniel back to Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that graphic. We, we were trying to figure out an image to put in the, the bullet. I'm terrible on sermon titles. You know that by now. It's like, this is gripping part four. It's like, wow, that's catchy. Um, and I'm also terrible at graphics because I, I just... Anyway, I'll stop because I'll say something that later I will regret saying. Uh, but the graphic in this one actually matters. You see, it's Daniel and a lion. Right? But when I look at that, I don't, it's, not, it's not this story I'm thinking of. In my mind, the lion I'm thinking of is Jesus. Because Daniel sets the stage for what's to come. And in fact, Daniel just doesn't set the stage. He actually, he's handed the baton. He runs it down the field a little bit and then hands it off. Here's what I mean by that. If you go back to Genesis chapter 49, you don't have to right now, but you read a story of Jacob blessing his sons. And as he does that, he sits his boys down and he's, He's speaking a blessing over each of them. And he gets to one of them, and he speaks of God, who he calls the shepherd. And, and it's, in my Bible, it's actually in brackets, who is the rock. Like, what a weird name. <laughs> That's a strange name. The psalmist in Psalm 148 picks up that same term. Right? This is before Daniel. Speaking of this rock, this stone Isaiah picks up the same thing. He's before Daniel. Daniel actually might have even heard bits and pieces passed down of what Isaiah had said. Isaiah 8. This stone that if you fall on him, it will destroy you. And if he falls on you, he will crush you. Speaking of the Messiah, the one that God was going to send. Daniel picks up that language and he says, this, this kingdom starts with this stone this rock that comes and grows and fills the earth and we discover as we understand the image correctly that it's both an image of the kingdom and the king this king who will come and rule a kingdom that will never end that's Daniel's language that's his contribution when he hands off the baton he's like here's what I'm adding to the picture I'm adding to the picture this knowledge this kingdom will stand forever one day an angel comes to Mary and announces something <laughs> both wonderful and troubling. That she will be pregnant. Though she's a virgin, she will give birth to a boy who will be great, called the Son of the Most High. And then he says this. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's interesting because that's Genesis 49. He'll reign over that house forever and of his kingdom there will be no end the angel saying you know what Mary you probably heard the story of Daniel you probably knew there was a promise made prediction prophecy promise that God was going to start a kingdom and it would never end Mary you're going to give birth to the king Jesus, when he starts to announce his ministry, listen to how he announces it. This is his words in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. That's how you point back to prophecy. That's how you say, remember the prophecies, they're coming true. 
Here's what he attaches to it. The kingdom of God is at hand. See, that's Daniel language. (laughs) That's this rock that's going to come and shatter the feet. It's going to grow and grow and one day fill the world. And as you read through the stories of Jesus, and we don't have time to do them all, in Luke chapter 20, when Jesus goes right back to Isaiah 8 and Psalm 118 and speaks of this rock, that he is the rock and he is the one who's going to come. If you read in Matthew chapter 21 and he picks up the same language, and then you get this incredible moment in John 18 where he's, on arrest, he's under arrest, he's on trial for his life, and it's this very interesting exchange. And probably, you, probably this will sound familiar, where he's asked of, you know, basically, why don't you fight? <laughs> why aren't we in a war? If you're a king, what's going on? And his answer to them is, My kingdom's not of this world. Remember this verse? If it were, we would be fighting. But it's not. And so we don't. Have you ever turned that answer over a little bit? Because I think all we hear is, my kingdom's not of this world. But the little clause in there, if, if it were. In other words, My kingdom is not like these worldly kingdoms. This is the point. This is what he says. My kingdom is not like these worldly kingdoms. If it was, we would be fighting right now. Why? (laughs) Like, that's a very interesting statement. Well, if it were like these worldly kingdoms, we'd be fighting right now because he is set on world domination of a kingdom that will never end. Because that's just not the nature of my kingdom. It's not like these other kingdoms. These other kingdoms are passing away. Mine is a kingdom of faith. It's a spiritual thing. It's still going to spread through this whole world. And so his disciples in Acts chapter 1, who are trying to put all the pieces together, they come to him and say, is this the time? Like, is it finally going to be fulfilled? Listen to how Jesus answers them when they, when they ask this question. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And here's Jesus answered. It's not for you to know the times. Or the seasons the Father's picked by his own authority. He doesn't really answer the question. But what he does do is he describes something that they're to do. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. He's described Daniel too. This little rock that you could mistakenly think has no consequence. And could never possibly upend whole kingdoms. And could never fill this world with the glory of God. And Jesus says, all right, here's the marching orders. We're going to spread through this whole world. And as we do, my kingdom's going to spread and expand and expand. And Revelation 11 announces with great clarity, one day it will have finished its purpose. And Jesus will reign forever, uncontested, with a glorious kingdom. That, Emmanuel, is our hope. That's why we have courage. Even when things are hard, don't lose hope. God's kingdom will prevail. 